This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women Join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show with writer and activist Soraya Shamali. We're going to be talking about the interconnection between a host of actually touchy topics, things that we sometimes think of taboo, things that we shouldn't be discussing, say, at my father's dinner table, but are actually really important to talk about because they have such a huge impact on women's safety and agency. They include gender, media, politics, money, rage, and yes, even religion. Our phones are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And we would love for you to join the conversation. Give us a ring and tell us, what does women's anger mean for you? Is it inspiring? Is it off-putting? Does it make you feel angry too? And what do you do with it once you're made aware of it. Our phone number is 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. Before I welcome our guest to the program today, I want to tell you a little bit more about her. Soraya Shamali is the author of a really amazing book called Rage Becomes Her, The Power of Women's Anger, which is just the latest project in a long career as an award-winning writer and media critic. Her work appears regularly in national and international media, including Time, The Atlantic, and Ms. Magazine. She's the director of the Women's Media Center Speech Project and organizer of the Safety and Free Speech Coalition, both of which are involved in curbing online abuse, media and tech diversity, and expanding women's freedom of expression. Soraya started out her career working as an associate editor at Paris Passion, Time Out Magazine, and she's worked for the Gannett Corporation in marketing, and she helped launch the newspaper and media division at Claritas Corporation, which is now part of Nielsen. She served as their vice president of corporate marketing before leaving in 2001 to form her own consulting firm. In 2016, she was the co-recipient of a Newhouse Mirror Award for an in-depth investigative report, The Secrets of the Internet, and a Wikipedia Distinguished Service Award for exemplary contributions to the advancement of public knowledge. And we get the great benefit of having her join us today to advance our knowledge here on Women at Work. So, Soraya, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, I'm so delighted to talk to you today, Laura. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. So, Soraya, I want to talk about a lot of things today. The book the work you're doing at the Women's Media Center. But I want to start out by asking about two themes that I think are underlying um, and interconnected through your work, and that's anger and vulnerability. How do we give women voice and how do we protect women at the same time? Am I seeing these threads accurately? Are these things that you're writing about because they are connected to each other? Um, I I do think they're connected. Um, I I think my approach to vulnerability... uh, Maybe a, a little different from what I'm hearing in in your framing, which is that I think that vulnerability is actually weaponized against women more often than not, particularly in terms of the expression of anger, and that um, it can it can be a, a very powerful tool against women as assertive, confident, or explicitly angry people. Um, because we're expected to perform as weaker, more vulnerable people, particularly in the United States, where because of race, vulnerability gets all tied up in ideas of white feminine fragility. And 
but also at the same time, when we express our anger and when other people express their anger, we see that women are sometimes at risk in a different way, particularly online. They are at risk everywhere. I mean, what I try and document in the book is study after study after study that shows uh, the persistence of penalizing girls and women who express anger. Uh, what happens when, when we talk about what is important to us, which is what anger is about usually, mm-hmm. Uh, whether we are at home or at work or in the political arena, uh, isn't that people listen to our words, but that they get angry at us for being angry. Because <laughs> right. in fact, you know, to be angry is uh, to break rules about gender because the the emotion itself is categorized as the moral property of boys and men. And so when we express it, it makes people profoundly uncomfortable. Yeah, it's inconvenient and disruptive. Well, and and actually, it's quite threatening to the status quo, which is um, based on this foundation of binary and oppositional gender roles in the society. It's how our labor is structured. It's how our families are structured. Um, And so the minute we we reject that by saying, no, I'm really angry and I'm going to hold you accountable, um, that's really destabilizing. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And we have a lot of anger. Um, that's being expressed right now. You're not the only person to have come out with a book on women's rage and anger. Um, I think it's an extraordinary accomplishment and all on its own important. Um, but I think the fact that there's there's a reason why we're angry and that we're just starting to express it um, is a reflection. Do you think it's a reflection of the time that we're in that we're being provoked to express it or that we need to be provoked to express it more? Oh, I think it's probably the sum of both, right? I mean, generally in times of political tumult and uh, chaos throughout history, which is what Rebecca Traister really talks about in her book, Good and Mad, and uh, Brittany Cooper touches on in Eloquent Rage, women are given more social leeway to be angry. I mean, if you look at any transformative social revolutionary movement, women are always at the forefront of those movements. But as they become hierarchical and entrenched and institutionalized and formal, the women are pushed again to the side. And as the chaos declines and normalcy comes back, so too do do the expectations about gender. There's often a period of retrenchment and backlash um, after chaos that works to push women into the quieter, more private spaces of life. Uh, The question that I have this time around is, will that happen again? How sustained is the anger and outrage mm. that women have today. Right. And and when we are not as provoked, when things are not um, as destabilized, um, if we have the sense that we feel safe and, and comfortable in whatever the reality is, that rage may just, um, is it that it goes away or it goes back in the closet? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's part of what people want when they think about happier times, (laughs) which is no friction, no complaining, no anger. We were all very happy. I mean, you know, there's a lot of aggrieved entitlement in the sort of resentful message of making America great again, right? Um, There's this, there's this illusion that there was a, an idyllic period in the country when everyone was somehow fine and equal and, and equally happy and, um, part of that culture is a culture in, in which you had the kind of idealized femininity of the stay-at-home wife who was almost always 
you know, a, a middle class, upper middle class white woman. And she was never angry. Or at least she was never perceived of as angry or expressing her anger. But part That's of right. she, what we know right. is there was plenty of anger. Yeah, there was plenty of anger. And, you know, I think that it's interesting because we have all these stereotypes about angry angry women. And um, and I touch on them in the book. But, you know, if you're Hispanic, you're categorized as sort of hot and sexy. And if you're black, you're an angry black woman just by default of being born. And if you're of Asian descent, there's sort of the trope of the sad Asian girl. Um, but if you're a white woman, you're depicted as crazy, you know. <laughs> And there's a little bit of the wink, wink, why are you angry? Look at how well we're treating you. But like literally in the culture, right? It's like you don't have anything to complain about. Look at those women over there. And sometimes the women over there are six miles away or 6,000 miles away, you know? And so there's always this sense that um, women's rights are only really comparable to other women's relative vulnerabilities. Talk to me more about that a little bit. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, when a when a woman says, hey, things are not right in the world, what is going on here? It's very often a very strong cultural response to say, what are you talking about? X women over there are treated so much worse. And we see this over and over again in media. So if there's a period in media where, for example, American men are in the, in the spotlight for egregious behavior, let's say a Me Too story, mm-hmm. you you see a, an upswing in stories about rapes in India or abuses in Brazil. And there are some very interesting studies about the nationalistic macho culture of media that literally highlights the bad behavior of men in other countries uh, in as a kind of relief to uh, pointing out how not as bad women here are being treated. And you see it at the macro level of media, but you also see it online and online conversations. And you see it at the dinner table. You know, if if a woman says, you know, I'm really unhappy about this pay inequity, um, very often the response she gets is, what are you complaining about? It's so much better than it was 30 years ago. Or you have flexibility. Or, you know, you're being paid more than anybody else in our family has ever been paid. I mean, there are all of these objections to the quality of unfairness that she might be describing. And doesn't and, that fundamentally send the message that, um, so I guess that's what you were saying, that it's anchoring your reality against the reality of other women. It's not anchoring your reality against the reality of men and not the men or, in your own or country. the fact that you have rights, like citizen rights as a citizen. You know, you have, you have all kinds of rights um, that have nothing to do with whether you are a man or a woman. And yet when women talk about their rights, those are posited as somehow only relative in the sphere of women compared to other women. It also seems like it's sending the message of be grateful it's not worse. That's exactly right. That's constant. You know, and and what I'm always saying is, you know, my rights are really not contingent on the vulnerability of another woman. That's not the way our rights work. Right. You know, or how they should be measured or how they should be measured, you know. Um, Yes, it is horrifying that there are women who are suffering terrible, terrible violence and harm. But in fact, women in our country are also suffering those harms. I mean, we have the highest maternal mortality rates in the developed world. They're the only country where maternal mortality is growing. And, you know, African-American women are three to six times more likely to die 
in in our country from childbirth. And that's meaningful, right? Yeah, it's meaningful and it's frightening. What's the system that's generating that? Well, I, I mean, I think that it's a system of white male supremacy that's generating that. I, I mean, I think, you know, it's it's not really a matter of opinion. We have to sort of <laughs> right. look at in the <laughs> right. face of our government and our institutions of Hollywood, of Silicon Valley, of Wall Street, of D.C. I mean, we're still talking about, you know, institutions where men make up 80 to 90 percent of um, leaders in those places. Yeah, this was one of the things connecting these dots between, like you were saying, our individual conversations, whether it's at home at the dinner table, whether it's in our workplace, whether we're looking at it on the national stage, this constant messaging that our rage is un- uncomfortable, inconvenient, unjustified, um, and that should be shelved because, oy vey, it could be so much worse. Um, that it seems like at every level there's systems and a culture that work together to perpetuate it. Well, yeah, and, and also I think part of that is this constant refrain that somehow our anger is uh, personal and not political, that it's private and not public, um, that it has to do with our individual behavior instead of systemic problems that we are dealing with every day. I mean, you know, we 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 know we I mean it's measurable the, the level of discrimination microaggression and um sexism and racism that women deal with is um quite high and and when people are asked to record it you know the incidences are between 1 and 3 a day incidents of of exposure to this or awareness of this and so a lot of women really do live in a state of hypervigilance um and that has tremendous health effects of course as does the diversion, suppression, or repression of anger. So I want to because we can't express it healthily. This was one of the things that you wrote about with tremendous eloquence and power in the book, where you walked us through each of the, kind of the different stages of our lives and where these systems and cultures and norms um, oppress us, take advantage of us, but the ways that our anger is um, sparked but silenced at each stage. Could you talk a little about the arc of, given that we are taught from the earliest ages to suppress our anger, how do we start to learn to let it out when it is political, when it is about a system, when we want to release it as a force of making change in our society in addition to personal healing and catharsis? So I I think there are you know, several, several points that, that you're making. One is that so much of what we are dealing with is deeply socialized, and so we have to unlearn lessons that we've learned. And um, sometimes that just means acknowledging in ourselves what we're feeling out loud, because sometimes that's very difficult, right? It's much easier to say, I'm sad about something or I'm irritated than to really confront someone with anger. And that's particularly true in heterosexual and very traditional families where women uh, report knowing that an expression of anger might be poorly received by their fathers or their brothers or their fathers uh, or their husbands. And so instead they express fear or sadness. Um, And so we have to unlearn those lessons and be true to ourselves because very often the feeling of anger that we have is a memory of a much younger self that we've put aside. And those lessons come out, the lessons that are prohibitive are part of our religion and and part of our... um, school lives and and just part of our day-to-day socialization 
Um, so I would say unlearning those things is very important. Using the right words to label what we're experiencing is very important. Um, and holding people accountable because, in fact, what we learn is that anger threatens our relationships. But really what it does is it shows us to what degree the people around us care or don't really care. Do they actually care about what we're saying? And at that point, um, I think that's difficult, right? It's difficult to say, actually, this person doesn't care so much. What am I going to do? Right? And then you have a decision to make. And those those are individual decisions. But beyond that point, it also means you're able to articulate your issue and find other people who feel the same way and form joyful, creative communities around these issues politically. You're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest today is Soraya Shamali, the brilliant author of Rage Becomes Her, The Power of Women's Anger. If you want to join in the conversation, if you have questions for Soraya, or you want to talk about your own experiences of finding your voice, expressing your anger in order to make change in your own life, give us a call. We'd love to hear your story at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So, Soraya, as you're talking about this kind of fundamental transition of instead of silencing our rage, instead of um, letting it be expressed as sadness or silence, um, in, instead of quieting it because we're vulnerable, accepting that we may lose people in the process um, so that we can articulate ourselves, find others, and find a community. How does this relate to what we see going on online? where people are expressing rage in ways um, we've never been able to before up close and personal. And it's having um, a huge range of effects on people. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple of distinctions we should make. One is, you know, I think it's entirely possible to express anger in quiet, thoughtful ways, right? And a lot of people think that the only way to express anger is an explosive rage which is another dysfunction, because by the time you've expressed explosive rage, you actually haven't been processing the anger in a, in a healthy way at all. Mm-hmm. It's been pent up and then it explodes. The thing about the online environment is that it's a disinhibitory, right? People actually feel very often less inhibited. So mm-hmm. the, the social inhibitions that they encounter face-to-face with other people or in certain institutional settings seem to disappear for them, and so they are freer to express themselves. Um, It's often also the case that people can express themselves in writing in ways that they cannot verbally, because to do it verbally is even harder. Um, And so the medium lends itself to the expression, not just of rage, but also to righteous anger that is carefully expressed. And I think we need to make the point that both of those things are true. Um, Unfortunately, though, we do have a lot of hate online, and that comes out as an expression of rage. Um, And the business model of the Internet rewards that. It rewards the extremism of hate because hate generates engagement and engagement generates money for for social media companies. It's interesting. I I appreciate the way that you're making distinct these different ways that our anger is – what its roots are and the form that it takes, because there's an anger that I think that you've written about that comes from pain that we feel as individuals when we are um, violated, dehumanized, hurt, disregarded, disempowered. And there's um, 
a rage that emerges that that is itself a form of hate and violence. I, I would say, you know, on psych- somewhere these things are interconnected, but it seems like what we're seeing online in our discourse, and maybe it's why it's so unproductive, is that both things are present in the argument screaming at each other but not hearing each other. Yeah, I mean, I think we are most dominantly and commonly used to associating anger with negative emotions and behaviors. So contempt, disgust, and fear, uh, those are all tightly associated with anger, uh, certainly in our cultural imagination, and they're deeply intertwined. But anger in and of itself is an emotion um, is neutral, right? It is as related to compassion and empathy and, and social justice. There's mm-hmm. no reason for us to set those aside because they're legitimate. I mean, it's a signal emotion that warns us of indignity and threat and unfairness. And so to ignore it actually does us a huge disservice. And and actually what I say in the book is that by severing it from femininity, we really sever girls and women from a powerful tool of self-defense because we aren't angry irrationally. Usually anger is a very logical, rational response to a situation that you find yourself in. So if we learn as a function of being feminine to put that aside, we lose all of that. We lose both the ability to defend ourselves and the information that we're being threatened. Um, and that's not good for anybody. No. There was a, a quote that I wrote down from the book that I just loved where you wrote, expressing anger is disobedient and rebellious, powerful and threatening because it's the seed of aggression and collective action. So is um, in this conflict, this internal conflict of the pressure that we get not to express ourselves and the desperate importance of doing so. Um, What can women, how can we help each other express our anger so that we can move towards the collective action um, and not be shut down by the people that find us rebellious and powerful and threatening? So first of all, I would say many women feel that way, right? I mean, there's nothing inherently feminist about being a woman. And if you if you are a woman who has grown up in a very traditional framework or a very con- conservative sense of gender, um, your anger is different probably, right? You might be angry at a person like me who's saying these binary gender roles are, are destructive to the fabric of our society and to our health as individuals, right? But I think that women, generally speaking, um, everybody should be more media literate, should be aware of how stereotypes work, should be able to deconstruct those stereotypes as they function in their own lives. I mean, I think everybody wants to be able to grow healthier, happier children. The stereotypes that are currently informing the way our emotions are socialized are bad for boys and girls. I mean, boys are really cut off from powerful uh, feelings that they have that are sort of demonized as being feminine because they are showing weakness, fear, or sadness. Um, That's not good for boys. It's definitely not good for our society because when boys learn that the main emotion that they can express is anger and the main behavior that they can express it with is aggression, um, that's harmful, you know, And, and it's maladaptive because they end up hurting themselves in high rates of suicide or hurting other people in high rates of violence. Um, So it's not good for them either, but Um, I think if we can learn what these stereotypes mean and how to talk about them, that would help us, generally speaking, to have a healthier emotional culture. 
Um, and we can certainly stop judging other women by standards that hurt us all. <laughs> right. Um, you know, when, when a woman says that she's upset about something, it makes no sense to say that she's crazy or a bitch or, you know, that she just, you need to be able to listen to the woman saying and respect the fact that she is actually having this experience. Yes, and her experience is legitimate, and she has the right to express it. And, right. And also that, um, you know, as you've noted and lots of people discuss, that women's rage can be expressed through tears. So, you know. Yes, as, that's right. So rage can take lots of forms when it comes out. The question is how can we let it out when we need to, how we need to, so that we can start to affect some change in our lives. Yeah, and I think that we learn to cry because sadness is rewarded, right? Sadness is rewarded and anger is not, and crying um, confirms feminine attributes and uh, characteristics that make people more comfortable. So very often, even when a, a person is crying, she's crying and doesn't really even know that she's angry until after, you know. But while she's crying, she can't even speak. She can't get the words out because actually to get the words out is so threatening to the to the relationship that she's in. Right, to the status quo. And right. um, it takes an enormous amount of courage to be willing to upset that. Yeah, it does. And it takes a lot of honesty. But, you know, I find it interesting because um, the studies that I was referring to that show that heterosexual women have trouble expressing anger in relationships, so they express fear, for example. Um, I find them interesting because men in those relationships also say that they find anger in, in the women they're related to selfish, but in fact, women are initiating 69% of divorces. So it's clear that they're, <laughs> they're angry <laughs> and that they're actually taking action, right? Because it's really hard to have real intimacy or an egalitarian relationship if the person you're with cannot hear what you're saying. It's true. And that it's also a reflection of the many ways that we haven't learned how to communicate effectively about these things along the way. And, and it, honestly, which is the emotional labor that girls and women learn to do, which is you know, to take care of their own emotions and to anticipate and manage the emotions of the men around them. So whether we're doing it at home or doing it at work, we wind up subjugate what we're feeling to maintain the status quo, often hurting ourselves. Yes, I think that's that's a good assessment. And each other. Um, when we get back from our break, which we're going to take in a minute, um, Soraya, I want to learn more about what prompted you to write this book and how it connects to your work um, that you're doing at the center. Um, and we'll also talk more about where women and everybody else can find you and get involved with what you're doing. Um, so we need to take a short break, but stay with us. We're going to continue talking with Soraya. In the meantime, if you'd like to write in, you can reach us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can also tweet about us and let us know what you're thinking at BizRadio132. And I'm at Laura Zarrow. Um, we'd really love to hear you from you. I am Laura Zarrow, and this is Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius. Sirius XM 132. Um, we'll be back in just a few minutes. And once again, that's with Soraya Shamali. And her amazing book is Rage Becomes Her, The Power of Women's Anger. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio. Here again is Laura Zarrow. Welcome back to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how to get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and my guest today is Soraya Shamali, author of Rage Becomes Her, The Power of Women's Anger. She's also the director of the Women's Media Center Speech Project, an initiative dedicated to expanding women's civic and political participation and curbing online violence. Soraya, welcome back to the show. 
Hi, Laura. So talk to me about what's prompted, what prompted you to write the book in the first place. Um, and then I want to talk a little bit about your work at the Women's Media Center. Sure. Um, so I'd written a book proposal that kept changing over time, changing over time. And then um, we had the election, the build up to the election and the kind of very shocking and dismal aftermath of the election. Um, and I thought, you know, it makes a lot of sense to look at women's lives through the filter of anger, because what I think was really interesting was that before the election, uh, well, first of all, what's interesting to me is that women in general report higher levels of anger than men do, more sustained anger and more intense anger, which is contrary to the stereotype of anger as something that men have because, you know, they have testosterone is often the, the reason people give. But before the election, studies showed that uh, conservative women, mainly white women, were the angriest people in the country. And then after the election, it was like the pendulum totally swung, and liberal white women were the angriest people in the country. And so I thought, okay, well, I have this book that I want to write that's sort of a state of the union of women's lives. And um, so I'll use the filter of anger, which is so uh, pre prevalent in our politics, not just in this country, but globally, to think about those ideas. And that's what prompted me to write it. So I find it particularly curious, as it sounds like you did too, that it's women who are always more angry than men. But um, depending on what's going on politically, it could be conservative women versus liberal women. Why that difference? Why the what we're gender difference? Or the... why were conservative women so angry before the election? Wow. Um, that, I think they're, they're pretty upfront about it in some of these surveys. I mean, I, I think that they felt identity threat. I felt that, that there was a lot of racism in the air. I think that's been measured. Mm -hmm. um, I think that there, there is this aggrieved entitlement. I think when we talk about anger, there are lots of different kinds of anger, but there is an anger of, of aggrieved entitlement that is also, I think, really well documented, which is, you know, wait a minute, we we lived in a certain way or we had certain cultural promises, and now that seems to not be the case anymore. Are we losing our status? A lot of our politics has to do with status and identity and, and the threat to both of those, and we see that in our politics, and I think we, we saw that in the the anger of conservatives. So to break it down to its really basic components, it's that in a society where um, a patriarchal society where white men maintain the power and women are taken care of by those white men. Um, yes, that's right. There's a proximity issue, right? So if, if you are a white woman in, in our society, even if you are poor, even if you're marginalized by class, um, it is still the case that you live in closer proximity to people who have more cultural power and relevance, and certainly political power, right? We know that the political efficacy of white men is disproportionate to their uh, numbers in the society, mm -hmm. right? And so even though you may not feel like a privileged person, even though you may not feel that there are entitlements that have accrued to you, in fact, comparatively speaking, um, they're kind of built into the system, right? We, we, we don't think of affirmative action for white people because it's so institutionalized. It was institutionalized in things like the GI Bill or the way we educate people. Yeah, it's the default wealth. setting. It's the default setting, right? And so that's 
that's very difficult to think about and confront because it's so counter to the narrative of meritocracy and the ethos of sort of Horatio Alger success and working hard. You know, you work hard and you are rewarded. But in fact, a lot of people work very hard and are never rewarded because there are so many systemic issues of discrimination and prejudice. So is it that despite the statistics that we know about um, the chances of moving out of your socioeconomic class with or without education and a variety of factors that shape it, yes. that there's the perception that um, as a white woman, in a, conser- a conservative white woman, that if men, if white men maintain their power, um, and even if you're not married to one, even if you're not middle class or affluent, but that if you rely on those men, if you tap in and maintain part, you remain part of that system, you will be protected and rewarded. Well, certainly I think there is some of that. But what I find most interesting about this anger that was documented before is that, you know, Donald Trump's candidacy was one story after another of sexist malfeasance, right? Mm-hmm. He kept expressing disgust. He had the grab him by the pussy tape. I mean, over and over and over again, progressives and liberals were talking about how sexist and misogynistic this this really was, how, his, how, how fundamentally terrible his behavior towards women and girls is. Mm-hmm. And to highlight gender discrimination in that way can be very uncomfortable, right? Because first of all, no one wants to feel like a victim of that. And um, it feels very random and out of control. It can basically happen to anyone if you're a girl or a woman in that. It's not it's not that you have to do something other than be born a girl or a woman in, in that case, right? And so in an effort to offset that loss of status, mm-hmm. it's very easy to then tap into racial superiority and white supremacy to maintain a form of status. And so then having a black president re- yes. jeopardizes that status. That's correct. And so if you can use racial supremacy to assert status to balance the loss of gender status that you might be acutely aware of because you have this man walking around talking about women bleeding out of every orifice and grabbing women and, you know, highlighting that that predatory nature of his behavior, um, that generates a lot of anger, right? And it also generates a lot of xenophobia and and racist behaviors. So it's also anger that's deeply connected to fear. Oh, yes, absolutely. Fear of loss of status, fear of economic vulnerability, fear of the, of physical vulnerabilities. I mean, conservatives have much higher rates of fear of physical harm. And so you hear in their language words about disgust and, and, and infection and disease. And, you know, Tucker Carlson just did it where he said we're dirtier because of immigrants. And, and then we also... Then when you break this down and you can see that our fear of the other, our fear of losing power, our fear of losing protected status um, can is driving um, people's behavior in this regard. On the flip side, once that same president who um, is such um, whose misogyny is so evident and whose disregard for women's autonomy and voice is so clear that the anger that emerged on the other side gets diminished by the people, um, by the conservatives in the country, and categorized as crazy, as nasty, because it is inconvenient and disruptive, and it reinforces those same fears. Yes, I mean, I think that's what we see in the language of nasty women and mobs, you know, 
um, this idea that the women are unhinged or that they um, are irrational, you know, as though this response, this political response that we have is not actually the most rational response we could have to the situation we find ourselves in. So the way that we're talking about this right now is clearly polarized. We're clearly looking at anger that's emerging and integral to the politics in this country, that's also integral to racial identity and religiosity. How do we move into a discourse that goes beyond this kind of black and white, um, right and left discourse and into a productive discourse where anger on both sides can be expressed in productive ways. So, I mean, I think we're seeing a lot of that. And and I think we're seeing it in the heightened political engagement of the society in general, particularly on, on the left, because the left is very motivated. Um, but, but we've seen um, women particularly younger women, more politically engaged than ever before. And I would argue that that is a productive, creative way of channeling this anger. Um, but it happens in other ways, too. I mean, there's an efflorescence of, of art and music and uh, community activism, and, um, and all of that, I think, can be tied to to the feelings that people have of wanting to shape the world around them, which is what the claim of anger is. It's interesting, of course, because girls are socialized to to express themselves through sadness, mm-hmm. and we're all socialized to reward that sadness. But in fact, sadness is more a feeling of acceptance, whereas anger, which we taught to associate with masculinity, is related to feelings of control, that you can control the situation that you're in or at least affect it, right? Mm-hmm. And so the expression of anger, I think, is incredibly hopeful because it means that people feel a sense of ownership and commitment and the power, as opposed to the powerlessness, um, the power to make change. Right. And when you describe it that way, it also makes me think about how women's sadness is often like children's dealt with like, oh, don't be sad. Put the sadness away. Let's just move past it, where anger is about affecting change. Yes. And I mean, sadness is important. I mean, sad, sad people can be very empathetic. They tend to be kinder. Um, But it is something that you're expected to deal with on your own. Um, Oh, if you're feeling sad, you know, why why don't you go take a nap or lie down or you know, go, <laughs> right, right. go write in your journal, you know? I mean, it's a very, it's a very sort of private thing. You can mourn in, you can mourn together. People clearly mourn in communities, mm-hmm. but if a person is feeling sad about something that happened to them, um, it's generally up to them to do something about that, you know? And it's interesting, of course, because when men express sadness, uh, people actually find them weak. Right, which is also not which fair to horrible, them right? because they're whole no, people terrible. who are entitled to those feelings. Absolutely, and it's a really it's really terrible response to any human being, right? If a person says they're sad, they they have legitimate rights to feel those feelings and and have the people around them care for them, you know. But in the same way that women are penalized for expressing anger, men are penalized for expressing sadness. And it's ironic. And that's why, yeah. 
it's ironic that we can't bring the same compassion about honoring women's sadness to men and some compassion about honoring women's anger. <laughs> right. I mean, that's why that's why the book, you know, I'm really focused on this notion of thinking about the way gender shapes our childhood socialization so that we can ungender these these emotions. They're human emotions. And, and you know, I, I think a lot of people struggle to reconcile the lessons of their their own childhoods, right? I mean, I grew up Catholic. I grew up learning that there were young ladies and young gentlemen, and that that way of teaching children is um, deeply corrosive. I mean, in fact, it would make a lot more sense just to grow good, healthy people who are good people and good human beings as opposed to gendering the way we're supposed to behave or feel or act or display these emotions. Um, you're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest today is Soraya Shamali, the author of the brilliant Rage Becomes Her, The Power of Women's Anger. If you've got a question for us, please give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So, Soraya, I want to change directions just a little bit for a moment. Um, and I want to talk about the work that you're doing at the Women's Media Center, what it is, and what the speech project is and why this gets your time. So um, the Speech Project was founded a couple of years ago at the Women's Media Center, uh, and the focus is really on expanding women's civic and political participation Mm -hmm. in the public sphere. And the genesis for the project was um, online harassment, vitriol, and anger towards women who did act publicly. Um, we know from study after study after study that women are targeted for online harassment uh, more often, particularly if they're women of color and black women, and that this affects women more than it affects men. The emotional resonance of the of the harassment is greater for women because online and off, we have to be more careful, more private. We have greater security concerns. We are hypervigilant in public space uh, offline the way we have to be online. And so uh, when I started writing, for example, um, 10 years ago, on, and, and, and with a social media presence, I realized immediately, which was kind of surprising to me, how much vitriol there was. It didn't really matter what I said at all. It was just the fact that I was saying it and that I was saying it with authority or expertise in a, in a public sphere. And then I started talking to other writers and uh, was really chagrined to understand that this was kind of a new normal for women and that many women were choosing not to write or to write about different topics or not to um, build their own careers as writers because of the risks that they perceived. Um, At the same time, I, I belong to an organization called Emerge America, which trains women to run for office as Democrats. And um, it was very clear that the situation that women writers and journalists find themselves in is virtually identical to the situation that women politicians find themselves in. And I thought that it was quite remarkable and shocking that the harassment women were describing was not being taken seriously by our institutions as a, as a matter of um, threats to democracy. So our news media, our law enforcement really didn't pay much attention to this. It was really like offline violence against women, something that women were supposed to protect themselves from. 
they had to learn to you know stay safe rules the police who really didn't know very much about um online harassment would counsel people to just get off get get off of the internet which of course is not a practical response to work or life it's not so, so the, you're making yeah. a really important point here and i want to unpack this a little bit to make sure that i'm understanding it that in the same way that in our personal lives we have learned that we can always be physically vulnerable and as a result many of us learn well we shouldn't have to that we have to protect ourselves because otherwise we can really be hurt and whether it's about being conscious of where we're walking how we're dressed where we go alone how we take public transportation um, that is such a reality for so many of us that we just make decisions around it, but that it winds up in many ways taking us out of certain spheres of activity. And Well, it, for sure. And so what you're saying is that because when women are expressing themselves online, they're subject to similar kinds of really frightening, dangerous harassment, women pull themselves out of that sphere, and as a result, we actually lose those voices in our public discourse. That's correct. And, and you know, I, I want to be careful, too, about the, the use of the phrase online harassment, which is a good catch-all, but it does us a disservice because it really masks the full range of tactics, some of which are illegal, that are being used against everybody, but some specifically against women. So women's harassment tends to be more sexualized. It tends to be more sustained. It tends to be related to offline violence like stalking, intimate partner violence. Uh, these are, you know, many women are the targets of these behaviors, and technology enables them even further. So if you think about the fact that one in six women are stalked, one in three or one in four live with intimate partner violence, um, one in three to one in five ha have been raped, those are high numbers, and in fact, they're sort of terroristic because women are aware of these things, and they change their behavior as a class of people. And so online harassment can leverage that awareness to further curtail women's activities. And we want women to run for office. We want women to be writing stories and framing stories and, and creating public knowledge and awareness. And so... We need to confront head on what this policing of women in public life really means to the culture, you know, and and whatever form of hate targets women, it's always intersectional. So if a woman is being targeted because she's a black woman, it's usually the case that she's being targeted as a black person and a woman. She can't separate those things out. That's her life, right? That's who she is, and right. So, that's who she is, and that's how the harassment is targeted. If if a woman is a, a Muslim or if she's Jewish, um, she she might be targeted with anti-Semitic and Islamophobic hate, but she has layered on top of that the threat of rape because she's a woman. And so understanding the intersectional, intersectional nature of the harassment and why it generates greater harassment is really central to confronting it. And so is this the focus of the Women's Media Center? And what's the um, outcomes that you're looking for with the speech project? So the, the Women's Media Center has now for over 10 years produced, I would say that the strength of the center is that we document uh, institutional imbalances mm -hmm. or efforts to 
to address those imbalances and try and hold institutions accountable. So we have a regular series of reports about media, uh, media management, diversity and inclusivity or lack thereof in media. And, um, you know, they, they're the, the reports are sort of uh, status reports and, and then some deep dives into specific areas. Um, when you're talking about the, institutional imbalances, um, you're, I just want to clarify, you're not talking about the imbalances within an organization. You're talking about things like the institution of the press and the institution of government, or are you talking about individual well, organizations? No, I am talking about individual organizations. So we'll look, for example, every year there's a media report that shows what percentage, the, the sort of demographic breakdowns of media management, uh, by uh, often by title. So what does the New York Times look like? What does the Washington mm-hmm. Post look like? What does CNN look like? Um, how many women are writing sports stories? How many women of color are writing sports stories? So, you know, in sports, for example, which is a hegemonically masculine space, uh, men still write, I think, somewhere between 87 and 93 percent of stories. And women make up that balance, and women of color are even smaller, like 1 percent, 2 percent in some of these categories. But that becomes particularly important if you think about the way that rape is represented in our media or Me Too, mm-hmm. because so many stories about rape come out of sports departments in our media because it's often the case that high high profile athletes are involved. Um, and so that's important because, in fact, men with no expertise in sexual violence are writing profusely about sexual violence. And when they do, they're less likely to interview victims, to talk to women, to focus on the long-term effects, to understand the neuro, you know, the neurobiology of trauma, and more likely to focus on a man's reputation or the legal issues that might pertain to uh, a school setting or, or, or to an institution. And so that's the sort of work that the Women's Media Center does. The Speech Project, we're really focused on trying to uh, shape understanding of of why this harassment is important. So we work in coalition with other organizations. We work with media to address framing, to explain the taxonomy of harassment. What are the components of harassment? How do you define them? What can people do about it? Um, we have a resource uh, a resource page that we update continuously that is a clearinghouse for work that other people do in terms of producing studies or reports or guides for how people can think about these problems for themselves or their institutions. And so is this, um, so if people want to learn more about what you're doing and they want to understand the principles um, behind it, and is that something that they can find out by tapping into the Women's Media Center project? Yes, the Speech Project has um, a, a, a sort of a dictionary of terms that are related to online harassment that people may or may not be familiar with, like doxing or swatting. What's Uh, doxing and swatting? Doxing is when a person's private information is shared with malice, so Mm -hmm. home address, for example, work address, phone number, um, and that's usually shared for some malevolent reason um, to cause the person to be fearful or to threaten their job. Um, that's what doxing is. Swatting is actually um, it's sort of trivialized as a prank, but a, a person will, for example, call the police department and say that 
uh, they'll name an address and they'll say that there's some violent illegal activity being planned or in that address, and then a SWAT team will go to that house. And it's very frightening for the people in the house because they'll open their door and they're surrounded mm. by guns. And, and it's not only frightening, but it has led to uh, death. And in um, black communities, it's much more likely that somebody is actually shot for all the reasons we know. Um, and so swatting is uh, dangerous and isn't a prank at all because it has has this effect on, on people's lives. Clearly. So it sounds like whether it's in your book, Soraya, or through the Women's Media Center, and particularly the speech project, you're giving us language to understand um, the different ways in which we are um, where anger needs to be expressed and addressed, the tools that we have for it in our society, and also, I think particularly, as it sounds like in the speech project, where anger that's not about our personal experience but rooted in hate um, is really being um, leveraged to silence whole groups of people and the importance of changing that. Is that a fair way of summarizing it? Yes, I appreciate that summary very much. Thank you. Soraya, I really appreciate all of the important work that you're doing and the time that you've taken to help us understand it more deeply. If people want to find more out about you and the Media Center Project, where should they go? So the Women's Media Center is easily found online. And um, in addition to the speech project, there are so many other really wonderful resources there. So I urge people to to look at that. Um, I tend to share my writing and thoughts uh, in Facebook and Twitter. Um, my Twitter address is at S-C-H-E-M-A-L-Y. And um, when I write articles, I post them there. Uh, when I'm on book tour, I, I also share that information there. Soraya, thank you so much for all of, that, all of it. We really appreciate it. If you want a uh, question about something you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter at BizRadio132. I'd like to thank Michelle Abramov, Dana Cash, Danielle Bruno, the fabulous team behind the booth. Shout out to Patty Hall. And to say, I'm Laura Zarrow, and this is Women at Work. Have a great week, everyone. To her inside. And we'll shine, yes, we'll shine, we will shine, we will shine. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.